0: morning everybody everybody doing pretty well today yeah come on now look at look outside everybody are we doing well or not so nice great time of the year all the good stuff is ahead of us that good weather and all that the good weather brings not that the winter's bad uh, because that's also a season that's very important um, but I said this in the first service, I, I don't know, like, when we sing songs like we just sung, and I'm so glad for two things. One, that this is a place that sings. I mean, we sing in this church, um, and then that we sing songs like that, you know, of surrendering all and laying it all down. But I have to confess, like, I feel like a hypocrite sometimes to sing such songs, because I don't want it to just be words on my lips. I want it to reflect my heart and my life. And I'll tell you one of the things that I've done, though, and which turns that moment of where I feel like a hypocrite into an even greater moment of worship, is I just start praying, God, help me. Help me to lay it down. Um, help, help me to surrender it all. Not because we have to, but because we get to. That's where true life is found, and and sometimes even because of that, that's where true life is found. I'll start singing that song and praying that song on behalf of other people. Um, and anyway, I just I don't know if I'm alone in, in in what I just said or not. I don't care that much, so. All right, we're, uh, we're stepping into a new, new series, and what we're going to call this series, we're not big into titles, but if a title can serve and communicate, then we're going to use it, um, it's called The Gospel in Pictures. The gospel, first of all, is something that we at Crossroads, we, we love the gospel. It, it almost means everything to us. We don't just believe it, but we dance on it. Um, because the gospel is at the heart of, of what the Bible, biblical message is. And, and I don't want to presume that we all know what the gospel is, and we're always throwing this term out. So we're going to look at this. And I'll, I'll just tell you right now, in its most basic form, the gospel is that God is going to make everything right in our world, He's going to make everything right in our lives, or at least he promises to do that if we trust him. And I don't know the world that you're looking at or the stuff that's going on in my life, but this is why gospel, it literally means good news. It's the good news that God's going to make it all right. And uh, the reason why we're calling it the gospel in pictures is because... At least in my upbringing, and it's probably true to many of yours. I, I got the gospel in propositions, namely through the Apostle Paul, and I love the Apostle Paul because Paul understands the way a Western Gentile thinks. Uh, so he gives us the gospel in in, in propositions, in points, and subpoints, and definitions, and and that's why we love the Book of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, and many of us that's, we don't even get out of those books. But we've been given more than just Paul's letters, we've been given a whole Bible. And much of the Bible is a Middle Eastern book, and the way Middle Easterners uh, process truth and make sense of reality is primarily through pictures and metaphors and images. And we miss a lot of these incredible images and pictures uh, that God is communicating the gospel to us uh, just because... We're not comfortable with that, but we're going to look at some of these pictures. And the the picture that we're going to look at today is the picture of homelessness. And you're like, wait a second, I thought the gospel is good news. Yeah, but the gospel always starts with, in a very honest way, our true condition. And so, turning your Bibles to Genesis 3, we're going right back to the beginning. And if you have a blue Bible like mine, you can go to page two. Shouldn't be too hard. And we like to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you can, let's stand. I'm going to start reading at verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened. And they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And Then the man... And his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman, <laughs> oh, it's almost a cringe factor to have to read this. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Well, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, that serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, what have you done? No, he doesn't. doesn't even bother with that question. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity, and now all of a sudden, he's not just talking to a snake, but he's talking to a Satan, a Satan. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and between her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, and with painful labor you will give birth to children. I'm surprised I haven't heard an amen to that. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for Adama you are, and to the Adama you, Adam, will return. This is God's word. You can be seated. So if you've ever heard um, this term, the fall, or that we live in a fallen world, it comes from this text. It's, it's a way of explaining how a, a good world that God create, created fell into the reality that it is today. And the Bible wants you to know that, th- that this world that we live in is not the world as God intended or, or, or what he originally created. It, it has fallen. And uh, Genesis 3 is, is here to explain how this happened, but even more importantly, what this means. So it it begins, and we didn't read this part, chapter 3 begins with Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. Um, Essentially, they sin. Their sin is one of disobedience. God gave them one rule and they broke it. And now all of a sudden, the, the good world that God created is beginning to unravel. But one thing I want us to see is that sin is much deeper than just breaking a rule. It involves that and can involve that, but this text describes God comes walking to them in verse 8. He's he's, he's seeking them out. He's he's seeking relationship, and he says, where are you? This isn't God wondering uh, the whereabouts of Adam and Eve. He knows exactly what tree they're hiding behind. He's not trying to find them. He's coming to ask them, where are you? Like, what's happened? Something tragic has just occurred. And see, because God made us for a relationship with himself, to walk with him and to talk with him in the cool of the day... That's exactly what God is doing. He's coming, he's coming to talk to them. He's coming to restore this broken relationship. He, 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 it's almost like he's saying, let's talk about this horrible thing that's happened today. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet. Let's talk about this. And the text says that Adam and Eve hid. And that is the essence of sin. It's running from a God who wants relationship with us. It's thinking that we can do life without God. And then you have to ask, well, why would anybody want that? Why would we want to do life without God? And and the answer to that is very simple we want control of our lives, we want to be our own lords, our own savior, our own masters. And if we do, if we're going to have God, we we want God on our terms. And here's one of the, those moments in the Bible where I can't help but wonder: Would things have gone differently? If Adam and Eve had taken full responsibility for their mistake, had they owned it, had when God come walking in the garden, if they had just approached God, fell at his feet and said, we blew it, we messed up, we made such a mess out of this whole thing, would you forgive us? And we'll never know if if, if it would have been differently, but what we do know is that Adam all of a sudden starts blaming his wife. Husbands sadly have been doing that ever since. Eve blames the snake. There's this throwing uh, each other and, 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 and other entities under the bus. They're doing this to justify themselves, and now all of a sudden we see sin spinning out of control. And the result of this is devastating. Probably best summed up in verse 23. Look at verse, we didn't read this. So the Lord God banished him and Eve, of course, from the Garden of Eden. They're sent out. They're exiles. Adam and Eve just lost home. And when you and I stop and think for a minute what home is, I mean, even for those of us who come from a bad home, we still know deep in our hearts what home is supposed to be. Home is that place where we're nurtured, where we're known, where we're loved, where we're cared for. It's that place where we thrive. It's the place where we're restored. It's, it, it, it's that safe place where we can be all that, that, that we are. And so Adam and Eve being banished, you need to not just picture them... Uh, being sent out from a tropical paradise, as we often do, uh, they just lost home. They're homeless. They're exiles. And, and that picture, sadly, is a picture we see a lot of these days, especially um, those, those images of the thousands upon thousands uh, those refugees from the Middle East who have had to find a new home. They're, they're sent out from from their home. It's, it, it's a painful picture. It's a devastating picture. It's, it's one that every blood-bought follower of Christ should be engaged in and asking God, God, how do we help this? And yet Americans can also tend to be a bit ethnocentric where we just think that America is the world's savior, and we just need to get them to America. They don't really want to come to America. They want home. They want home. And what Genesis 3, though, is here to teach us is that we're all homeless. We're all exiles. We're all alienated from from the place for which we were made, And and this is where I want to introduce to you, if you don't know about this idea or this doctrine, for lack of a better word, the doctrine of original sin. Because original sin is, is this idea that because we are all descendants of Adam, his sin is now passed into us. We carry his spiritual DNA. And that spiritual DNA is, it's no small thing. It, 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 it's like what cancer is to the physical body. It, it, it's now to our whole being. It's, it's this malignant tumor. And it infects every descendant of Adam. Now our culture today uh, rejects this doctrine, partly because it even just rejects the notion of sin. Because our culture today just desperately wants to believe. It wants to believe that everything's just okay. You're okay. I'm okay. Our world is okay. And everything's going to be just fine. But I want you to hear what G.K. Chesterton says about this doctrine of, of original sin. I don't know if you can read that, but it says, he says, Christianity pre- preaches... An unattractive idea, original sin. He says, but when we wait for the results of the doctrine of original sin, we find that they are pathos. Pathos is is, is this beating heart of compassion. And brotherhood, and a thunder of laughter and pity, for only with original sin can we pity the beggar and distrust the king. See, what he's getting at is this: The doctrine of, of original sin, it levels the playing field. That's why he says, "For only uh, with this doctrine of original sin can we pity the beggar and distrust the king? Because what original sin tells us that beneath both the king and the beggar, we're all the same, because in Adam, we're all sinners we're all infected with the tumor. Which means I can't ever look at anyone and think I'm better than that person. We're the same. And see, that's why this doctrine, it, it destroys self-righteousness. It doesn't allow for us to think what, what so many philosophies and 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 creeds of today want us to think that there are good people in the world and bad people in the world. Uh-uh. This tells us there's only sinners in the world. In fact I love what he says. He says this this doctrine of original sin results in a brotherhood that that brings with it this pathos. Um, because We're we're all in the same boat. We're all infected with the same disease. And and there, there should be some solidarity in that. That both the king and the beggar are brothers. And that we could actually find a ton of unity in that. And, and really what then it's left for the whole human race because it doesn't discriminate in any way um, that we're all in this place of cosmic homelessness. We're all aliens. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter your economic status. It, it's a it's pretty egalitarian idea. We're all homeless. And not what we should be. Now Genesis 3 spells out what this homeless condition is and, and, and all its implications. Um, the first thing it lets us know is that we're cut off from the environment f- from which we are made. Look at verse 17. The Adam he said, Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. To the woman, it says, the pains of childbearing will be very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth. In other words, the environment now is not working with us and working for us in harmony. It's it's working against us. We don't live in Disney World. Life is hard. It's difficult. It's wearisome. And yet somehow, we have been made to believe that life is good, that we live in Disney World. And if life isn't good, then there must be something wrong with me. Uh Uh-uh. The human condition is that life is about suffering. It's painful because we're sick and our world is sick. Disease, aging, sickness, suffering, and death. These realities are not part of the world that God originally made. I mean, let me, let me just talk about death. There is nothing more natural in the natural world than death because we're all going to die. But as much as we're told that death is natural, that it's normal, and some will even say, oh, it's so beautiful... It's just a, a normal, beautiful part of the human condition. You know what? You might be able to buy into that propaganda when you're watching a movie or you're sitting in a lecture at college, but I'm telling you, when you lose someone that you love in that moment, you know that this isn't natural, this isn't normal, this is not how it's supposed to be. Our hearts just almost instinctively know that... that that we are made for a garden, that we are made to live forever. And that's why Romans 8 says that we groan, we're we're, we're in this state of just being weary. And it says all creation is growing as as in the pangs of childbirth. It's in agony, it's in pain. The text says also we're not just cut off from the environment, but we're also cut off from each other. And we already see this in verse 12. Adam immediately just blames the woman. He says, it's her fault. And you see this division now. Uh, between husband and wife. You see this division between the genders, and then you get down to verse 16, and God says, your desire, Eve, will now be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And you now start to see that we are such a long way from the garden, where husband and wife live in this, this beautiful harmony together. It, it's all been replaced with this alienation And this alienation now is going to spill into their family. You just go to the next chapter and and you see brother killing his own brother. And and this alienation uh, gets spilled into every relationship. Where soon there's going to be not only just alienation between the genders, but there's going to be alienation between the races and alienation uh, between the generations and nation against nation. And look at our world! Sometimes I don't understand why why, why Christians sometimes in, in in making assessments about our world are just I can't believe what's going on. It shouldn't surprise us when we see nation against nation, when we see race against race, even gender against gender, family against family. All this passionate, almost hatred. We're exiles. We're not home. And see, this, this, this alienation is also incredibly personal because we're also cut off from our true self. That glorious and great self that God created when he fashioned us in his image. Instead now, the self is left where it's turned in on itself and it can't get outside of itself. Uh, you look at verse seven and it says the eyes of both of them were all of a sudden open. They were open to, to themselves and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together and made coverings for themselves. This is the first time where self is, is, is used in the Bible. And there's this, not just self-awareness, but there's all of a sudden now this obsession with self. One of the inklings, Roger Williams. The inklings are Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, uh, this group of people who would just sit around and drink a pint and talk about life. And wow, look at the stuff that they produced as their minds just had this catalytic thing going on together. Roger Williams wrote a book called The Descent into Hell. And the whole premise of this book is about a person who descends so deeply into themselves they can't get outside of themselves where they're just constantly obsessed with themselves and that's what he says is the descent into hell. That is a hellish place. And a lot of people live there today. And verse 10 talks about now how, how Adam and Eve, in being so so self-aware, are hiding because they're naked. However, if you look at the last verse of chapter 2, it says that they were naked and unashamed. But now they're naked and they're hiding. So you have to ask yourself, what's changed? They They've been cut off from their true self, which was this perfect reflection of God. In fact, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if we could see Adam and Eve in their original state before they sinned, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship them. They were just stunningly glorious. But see, they have now become exiled from the greatness and the glory glory which God made them to be. And they know it. And you look at this scene and there's this pathetic, sad, sad, deal to the whole thing. They're like two little children who totally messed up this good thing that their dad gave to them, and they want to hide it and cover it over and not let their dad see it. They're, 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 They're feeling deeply inadequate. They're feeling deep shame, and they're doing everything they can to cover up that inadequacy and that shame. And guess what? The human race has been hiding ever since. This is why we cover. This is why we have to control what people can see and what they can't see. Because deep within we know that we have been cut off from our true self where we could be real and authentic and in our fear now we hide and all we do is present a false pretentious self. And I kind of laughed today about how people complain about fake news all the time. Listen, our our news is just a reflection of us. We're fake. Our culture is fake. And why don't we then expect the news to be fake? And part of it is because we're hiding, we're covering up, we feel this deep sense of of, of condemnation. And some of you might say, no, that's not me, I'm not that. Why are some of you so obsessed with your appearance? Why are you so obsessed with your performance? Why are you a workaholic? Why can't you ever say no to someone because you're scared you're going to disappoint them? Why is it that some of you can't date someone that you think is below you? Why are some of you such pleasers? Why are some of you such perfectionists? Why is it that some of you, every time you make a mistake, you have to blame someone else? Those are your fig leaves. You're trying to cover. But here's what I want to say. If if you feel shame today, don't feel like you're alone in that. It's a human condition. We're all in the same boat. I'll tell you what's at the root of the whole thing we've lost God. The thing that just sent this whole thing spiraling downward and and caused it so that we are banished as as wandering exiles is because what made the garden, the garden, more than anything else is this is the place where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day and this is what we are made for. In fact, in Genesis 3, verse 8, where it says, God came walking, don't make light of even the fact that that God's walking. First of all, wow, God walks. wonder who that is. Making noise as he walks. I mean, I see Jesus all over the Bible. Okay, but then even the whole notion of walking, I mean, one of the things that we do when we go to Israel is all we do is walk. We walk from the time we uh, wake up to the time we get dinner at night and Something amazing happens on every one of these trips. We come back as one intimate family that loves each other, that knows how to weep with each other, rejoice with each other. It's not because we went to Israel. It's for the simple fact that for 10 days we walked together. And see in the Bible, uh, when someone walks with another person, that that too is um, that that represents intimate friendship. Living and I, I mean, the weather is warming up. We're going to walk all the time, starting now. When when Living and I are, are are walking together, we are most married in that moment. Imagine. Every day, walking with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, can you explain water? Hey, Jesus, today uh, Eve and I got in a fight. Can you help us out with that? They walked with him. And see, this is what is, is, is lost. And, and, and in verse 22, you have this another, uh, another image here. And I don't think anything paints the picture more of, of the human condition on this side of Eden, or east of Eden, than 22. When God says, I will not allow for any hand to reach and take the fruit from the tree of life. Because what God, in in essence, is saying is, you don't get all the goodies, you don't get the garden, you don't get the tree of life without me. And that's what they wanted. But here's the deal, outside of the garden, living east of Eden, we're still reaching, we're still reaching for the tree of life. We're still reaching for the garden because we can't forget what we've been built for. Some of you are reaching for true love. Some of you are reaching for success. Some of you are reaching for glory. Some of you are reaching for satisfaction. Why are we doing this? We need to listen to the Bible. We have lost home. And as much as we want to make this world home, it isn't. And it can't be it. Which is why, and, and all you have to do is live your life long enough to know that when you actually get your hands on, on something that you think, now this is going to finally satisfy me. And it could be anything. It could be, it could be a championship in sports. It can be um, getting married. It can be having kids. It can be living in the right neighborhood. It can be going on the perfect vacation. And, and you just think, if I could just have the perfect that, if I could even attain the perfect life. It always disappoints, it always lets us down. Because what we're asking of the world, or, the, or that little piece of the world, is, is for it to deliver something that it never can. We right now live east of Eden, which means that there is this cosmic disappointment to anything and everything that we ultimately think will satisfy. And living in a place like America, that we think is Disneyland, we think a lot of things are going to satisfy, which is why we're so chronically disappointed. Disappointed. And then a lot of times the way that people deal with their their anger and their frustration and their disappointment, they just become like Adam and Eve. They just blame they blame someone else. We blame our parents, we blame our government, we blame our culture, we blame our circumstances. But see, the Bible here in this chapter is telling, no, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a lot deeper than this. We're exiled. We're away from home. We can't forget the glory and the greatness for which God created us for. Our hearts know there's a tree. Our hearts know there's a garden. Our hearts know there's a God. And this is why we're striving. but We can't make it right. And see, if you don't know this, because some of you are thinking yourself, I see a lot of people walking out already, and I don't know why, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 I'm very aware that this is depressing. Who wants be told this? Wouldn't you rather have a pastor tell you about Disney World? And how you can have Disney World? Sorry, we're not snowflakes here. And the Bible doesn't treat us like snowflakes. This is the beauty of the Bible. It tells us the truth. It tells us the truth about ourselves. It tells us the truth about the world we live in. And it tells us why we are what we are. And it tells us why life is difficult, why it hurts, why it's toilsome and tiring. So, you don't have to play a game. You're just sitting around other people who are all in the same spot. If I have a a malignant tumor in my stomach and I go to the physician and the physician looks at me and says, Here, take a couple of aspirin. You just have a tummy ache. Is that loving? Is that compassionate? And see, in the name of love and compassion, we are being told that you're good and okay. And the world we live in is just fine. It might just have a tummy ache here, here and there. But we know better than that, don't we? And, and, and now I can now, the Bible steps into gospel, which, which is good news. Because what the Bible and the Gospel is going to tell us is, is how this alienation can be, can be healed. And, and it starts with God. It starts with our alienation from Him. Because our relationship with Him is the most important thing or most significant thing that's broken. And when that uh, alienation began, that's what sent the whole world into ruin. That has to get fixed. And put this on your level right now. Think about how alienation in your world gets fixed. Someone hurts you. Someone has wronged you. Tell me, how does that get healed? More education? Uh Uh-uh. Through repentance and forgiveness. The one who has hurt the other person has to repent. They have to say, I'm sorry. And they have to try to undo what they did to the best of their abilities. And the one who's been hurt needs to forgive that person. But forgiving another person is not just sweeping the wrong under the rug. That's, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is expensive. If someone robs you or or ruins your reputation, someone has to pay for that. Either you make them pay or you're going to incur the cost. The gospel is that God, through Christ, initiates the reconciliation. Jesus left home. He left his Father's side. He came across all worlds to find us, to seek us out, to bring us home, to make it right. And when he hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them, He's now starting to destroy the alienation. He's now starting to open the door to the garden. But here's the deal with, with the garden and getting back in. Look at verse 24. God, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So, to get back into the garden, it's not like God put a wall up and we got to somehow scale the wall. It's not that God even put a door there and somehow we got to push through the door. God put a sword there. And to get back into the garden means that we have to pass through the sword. And the sword in the Bible is a representation for God's judgment or God's justice. So to enter the garden, we have to pass through God's judgment. We have to pass through his justice. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And see, this is why Jesus had to come to the world and why he had to die. Because the justice of God demands that someone must pay. Someone must pay for every wrong, for every injustice, for every murder, for every rape, for every hateful thought, for every lusting of the eyes. Someone must pay for every sin. And Jesus came to the world to take the sword. He incurred upon himself the infinite cost of our sin. He paid the price. He took the justice of God so that we could have the grace of God. In fact, the way to understand the gospel is to see it as this this great exchange where Jesus gets everything that we deserve and we, in turn, get everything that Jesus deserves why Jesus became homeless. He became a wandering exile so he could bring us home. It's why he became naked so that he could clothe us with his righteousness. And just think about that one thought for a moment in light of all your shame, all your guilt, this need to cover. Paul says we're hidden in him, in Christ. That's a long way from Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. We're hidden in Christ so that when God looks at us, it's 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 as if he's looking at his own son, Jesus. Isaiah 53 says, and he was cut off. He was cut off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off so that you and I could be reconciled. That's the gospel. Jesus stood in our place. He paid it off. So we could be brought back in. I love this. Are you kidding? <laughs> now we're really at crossroads. And that's precisely my point. To forgive. Her question. Couldn't God just forgive him? And I think what you want by that is, could he just sweep it under the rug? But that's not forgiveness. To actually forgive someone, you have to suffer. You have to pay the price of that offense. And what Jesus is doing is he is taking on himself all of our offenses. He's paying the price. But why did he do that? Why did he make us? He made us so he he could walk with us, talk with us. He loves us. For God so loves the world. That's why He loves you. And we can still be like Adam and Eve, still wanting to do life on our terms, and to want nothing to do with that, Or all who are weary, who are thirsty are tired, who are naked, can come to this God and come home. But don't you dare come fake. Don't come with your pretentiousness. Don't come with your smoke and mirrors. Don't come with your hyper spirituality and your hyper goodness. You come to him naked. You come to him homeless. And you just come to him as you are. And you trust him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this wonderful family that can ask questions right in the middle of a sermon like that. I love that. But God, more than anything, open the eyes of our heart to see what you want us to see about ourselves and our world and how much we need you, and how much you did for us, because you love us, and you want to walk with us. May we repent today, God. May we turn from ourselves and turn to you.